For those of you that are just joining us, perhaps for the first time, or you haven't been in a few weeks, uh, we're trying a new thing for a while. Uh, Carrie and I are team preaching. Heard of team teaching, but not team preaching, but we're working together uh, to uh, expound the word for you. Part of the motivation in that is just to do something new and different, and Carrie is an able expositor of Scripture, but also because we wanted the junior high students to be upstairs, and uh, Carrie's their teacher, so I thought, well, we'll uh, share the time, and uh, we'll work together. The question that is before us this morning came from someone in our congregation, and uh, it uh, is a challenging question. We're looking forward to sharing the word with you. All right. Good morning. My name is Kerry Olson. Uh, as Paul said, it's, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, I'm a youth director here at the church. If you're visiting, welcome. And so we're in the middle of, of doing the series on discerning truth in a post-Christian culture. And uh, scary enough, uh, Pastor Paul invited people to ask questions. So this is one of the uh, last week we actually looked at what does the Alliance say about deeper life and is it bi- biblical. So this is our second week at taking them. Just so you know, some of the questions can be very difficult, right? And this week is no different than the rest. So we'll put the question up there and then we'll move forward into it. So the question is this. How do we approach interpreting passages in the Bible in the cultural context versus literally true for all cultures in all times. For example, passages in the New Testament about women being quiet in the church and not having authority over a man, etc. Another example, because having multiple wives was considered normal in the Old Testament, did God choose to overlook that? So again, this is going to be a challenging one. Because uh, we probably, remember the goal here is, and I'm going to talk about this, understanding the scriptures momentarily, I'm going to take a hiatus, understanding the scriptures, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I know this is going to sound crazy, but in the Bible, it actually says it requires that we have a prerequisite of the Holy Spirit leading us into truth. By the way, I actually, I don't think that necessarily means you need to be regenerated, I didn't talk to you about this, because the Holy Spirit actually, <laughs> sorry, the Holy Spirit actually is working in the lives of people who have been regenerated or born again, who have, who have faith in God, as well as those who do not. In fact, if he wasn't at work in it, when the word isn't spoken, we wouldn't get it and understand that we need yeah. salvation, right? So some truths are, are truths that we need to understand. But regeneration and understanding spiritual truths requires in our, our interaction with the Spirit. And then the, so this is really important. This is one of the reasons why we do this. Thus, we go to him as our teacher and we approach topics, especially difficult topics, in prayer, right? So that we ask him, Lord, lead us. Like even, even the scriptures themselves in certain ways say, lead us into your truth, O Lord, acknowledging that sometimes uh, we're not always, in fact, sometimes we have a tendency to pull certain things out that, that we want to support our positions and then keep us from error. So our goal, our goal with this is to learn how to study the Bible to get God's answers to life and questions. Sometimes the Bible itself actually raises questions that are clear and apparent, and other times not so much. Um, 
And in this particular case, it can, it, there, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. And biblically, and over the unit, by the way, over time, we're looking for prayerful, illuminated, and unity-based uh, drivers here. So chances are, even within our church, there might be some different ways of answering this particular question. Um, but, w- but with respect to timelessness, truth is intended for all people in all times, versus guidance that has cultural application for a specific group at specific times. And the Bible has both. There's things that, we ob- that people observed in the, old, in, in the Bible that we don't observe anymore. And there's other things that are timeless that we continue to do. I'm reminded of communion this morning when Ryan said, like, he doesn't change ever, right? The Lord never changes. And his table is the same from the very beginning when he established it. Actually, he took the Passover table and he made it the table of the Lord for us in the upper room. Before addressing some of these questions, and in this particular one, we need to establish some general principles of how to go about. So um, I love AWANA. So AWANA is an acronym. It stands for what? Let's hear it. Approved workmen are not ashamed. Approved workmen are not ashamed. Not ashamed of what? Of, of the scriptures, of the gospel, and that we are going to go about rightly handling the word of truth, right? So that's what we're going to talk about just for a minute before we answer the question is, how do we handle difficult issues in the Bible? Well, I think when we come particularly to those things that may have a cultural application or potentially a cultural application, we need to add some questions, some uh, principles to the typical hermeneutical principles. I'm going to let Carrie explain that word in a minute. But, uh, <laughs> but we're, going to, we're going to talk about how to interpret Scripture in a way that brings us to truth and understanding. And in this case, we want to ask the question, um, what does the Bible say about the role of women in church, role of women uh, in, in culture, uh, how does it address that? And uh, the general principles, I'm going to take you way off base here for a moment, okay? I'm going to talk about tattoos for a moment. What? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's just get way over there on the, on the uh, left side of this particular question. Is it a moral question? Is the issue that we're trying to discern a moral question? Now, what is a moral question? It's a question that is related to the Ten Commandments. God gave four commandments relative to our relationship with Him, and six commandments relative to our relationship with one another. And they're moral commandments. They have to do with the marriage covenant. They have to do with lying. They have to do with stealing. Um, And those kinds of things. So the question is, is this a moral question? Secondly, is it normative in the Bible? Or does it only occur in an isolated passage or two? In other words, how prevalent is this issue in Scripture? Um, One of the reasons that I typically preach expositorily through a book is so that my preaching will have the same balance that God has built into his word. 
In other words, I can't come every Sunday and talk about angels. Or three Sundays a month talk about demons. Because the Bible doesn't do that. Um, th- there are major themes, there are minor themes, there are overarching teaching, and then there is just a snippet here and there. And the reason I brought up the subject of tattoo is there's only one verse in the Bible that mentions tattoos. And it mentions it in a cultural context of people who practice that uh, body art, if you please, except it wasn't body art. It was devotion to demonic spirits that was manifested in the marking of the body. And there's only one verse in Scripture that touches on that subject. So you would look at that and say, this is not normative for all time. You know, this is not something to get all jazzed over, uh, because unless you're devoting yourself to demonic spirits, and you want a butterfly on your ankle or something, it's not an issue with Scripture. And it's a matter of personal choice. And I think it's important that we, that we get that. Is it moral? Is it normative in all the Bible or just an isolated passage or two? Is it true to God's character? Now, remember we're talking about those, those tough issues that may or may not be cultural, culturally relevant. And the question is, is it true to God's character. What do we know about God's character from the whole of Scripture? What does it tell us about His nature? Does this teaching fit His nature, His character? Or does it somehow seem, uh, you know, tilt, it's, it's not right there where it should be? Even if it's in the Bible, because oftentimes the Bible simply reports history accurately, inerrantly, but this is what happened. Or the Bible deals with a subject in its cultural context, because that's typical of the people of that time. Um, Part of the question uh, here, and I'll just go ahead and jump on this for a moment, is uh, how about multiple wives in the Old Testament? Well, did God create Adam and Eve and Susan and Rebecca and Jane? No, He created Adam and Eve. But even so, when... Multiple wives, polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament. You married a woman for life, even if you married four of them. You married them for life. The same covenants applied. It's not talking about succession. I'm on my fourth wife. (laughs) It's talking about women who you bring into your household And missionaries have run into these problems, for example, in cultures where polygamy is openly practiced. What do you say? How do you deal with that? 
uh, do you tell them, well, you have to get rid of all but the first one? That would absolutely destroy their economy and their culture. It would, it would ruin it. There has to be a transitional period that may take several generations to come to a deeper understanding. And it's not sin in the meanwhile because it was practiced in the Old Testament. But when we get to the New Testament, we begin to see more of God's intention of one man, one woman relationship. So uh, even a subject like that, you have to place it within its cultural context. And then how does it fit into progressive revelation? Now, I'm going to talk about that more at the at the end of the message, but progressive revelation is this. God started out in the redemptive story by majoring on the majors, the, the big issues. And then gradually the scripture as it unfolds begins to move us back toward Eden, if you please, back toward his original purposes. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, that are far afield from God's ideal. But we're so broken, you can't fix us all at once. And so there's a progressive revelation of God's purpose and God's will for our lives that through the scriptures is more and more fine-tuned. So that when we get to the New Testament and even into the letters, the epistles, we have more of a complete revelation of God's purpose. And we have to recognize that God, from the time of the fall until the time of the return of Jesus, is seeking to bring us back to what his purposes were. And the church is particularly equipped in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to reflect that growth that we are supposed to demonstrate to the world. So these are the questions I would ask about a cultural matter. Is it moral? Is it normative? Is it consistent with God's character? How does it fit progressive revelation? How about, in addition to those, Carrie, what about the fundamental rules of hermeneutics and interpretation? Yeah, so we, um, we do this actually in, in many ways. I'm, I'm going to, I like that big word, hermeneutics. I call it observation. So when we approach the scriptures, when we approach the scriptures, we have to understand that, um, by the way, our God is very alive, right? We get this? He is very much, very real, very existent. He actually defines existent. He's very alive, and he has been relating with humanity forever. And, by, and even people prior to the coming of Jesus, if they sought him out, would he meet with them? Yes. Would he teach them? Yes. Yes, he would. Enoch was translated, and so was Elijah and others. 
And so don't underestimate that they had less of God. What I'm telling you is don't underestimate that they had less of God because the canon was not uh, fully equipped. In fact, I think as time has progressed, our sin has actually impacted our minds more and more. Many of them had much, I think, a, a greater capacity to actually engage. Anyways, that's a different story. So I'm talking about observation. When we approach the text, when we approach the Bible, we have to understand that we're going to approach the Bible with our own worldview system when we read it. When we read it. And so we do this, and thus you hear people say, well, you can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say by using your presuppositions. We, if we want to handle, if we want to be Awana-oriented individuals that are approved workmen who are not ashamed of handling the scriptures correctly, then we need to actually labor. And I believe God means this on purpose. Like, I I realized that God wasn't going to make my understanding of him incredibly easy. He wanted me to be diligent. It was kind of like, don't get me wrong, it's kind of like, I always thought it was like panning for gold. So I used to like, I I had like uh, this this idea that I would take like, you know, those tins and put it into the into the water and I pull it up and it'd be filled with all kinds of rocks and stuff and then you know you clean it all out like you do when you go on the school exhibits. I don't know if Aiden and did this. And then the gems actually the sand falls away and then you get the fake gold and you put it in your pocket or whatever. And I think God actually wants us to labor. So here's the deal. We have to observe text correctly and there are certain things that we need to do to make sure that we try and um, eliminate as much of our subjectivity and presuppositions as possible. And here they are. What, does the, what is the context of the passage? So when you're reading a difficult passage, or you're reading any passage, you've got to look at the whole. You've got to look at what is the whole thing saying. So we like take stuff out of context frequently. It's really important not to do that. So I've said this before, but one of my favorite ones that we do that to all the time is where two or more are gathered in his name, there I am in their midst. We use that verse all the time for saying that, hey, when we're here on Sunday, Jesus is here. You know what that verse actually is about? It's about establishing wrongdoing with two or more witnesses that have observed me doing something wrong. Like two or more witnesses that have done something wrong, and, and I'm going to be accused of like adultery, and so two or more witnesses come. That is what that passage is about when you read the context. It has nothing at all to do with church worship services, and yet we use it all the time. So what is the context of the passage? What is the plain meaning of the words in the passage? So this is, I know this is going to blow your minds, but we mess this up all the time because of our heart and the sin issue, is that God is not trying to mess with us. He's not trying to set up these weird puzzles. And frequently, the literal rendering of what is in the passage is exactly what God means. And so we're like, no, you need to have a higher degree of study, or you need to have this, or you need to understand this, or you have to have these other pieces to put it together. And some things are complex, but there is a literal meaning. What is the plain meaning of the words in the passage? Point number three What are the answers to the basic interrogatives? I call these the five W's and an H. I use this all the time at work even. So who, what, where, when, why, and how. You have to ask yourself the questions if you want to get to a good understanding of what the passage is saying. And then lastly, 
Is the language intended to be metaphorical? Is it figurative? Is it a parable? Sometimes it's just an exaggeration. One of the ones I bring up all the time is in one of Solomon's writings. He says that too much study is wearisome to the bones. And I always say that, um, you know, like, I, I'm like, use that one on your mom and dads. You know, and they're like, you got to study. Of course, if you ask my son, I always tell him, I'm like, I have a job, right? I have a job. Actually, Kate was saying this yesterday. She's like, mom, you're my mommy. And dad, you're my daddy. Aiden, he's Aiden. And, uh, and, and, I, and, I always, and I always say that, hey, I go to work and I'm working this job and stuff. And Aiden, your primary job in, in life is school right now, right? That's his job. His job is to learn and to be a student in school. We're all students in some way or another. But that's his primary job, and he needs to work at it. But if you use that verse and you take it out of context, you can say, hey, Dad, Bible says it. I don't have to study. And I'm like, uh, all right, wait a second. Let's get some other verses together and let's see if we can do, do some good hermeneutics on that one, all right? All right, so we need to be diligent to present ourselves as approved workmen who are not ashamed the way we handle the Bible, right? So part of that has to do, if we're going to interpret Scripture correctly, we need to observe it as best as we can. So let's go directly to the question. The first part of the question was, how do we approach interpreting passages? And we've given you eight guidelines or principles for interpreting difficult passages. Now, if we go back and we ask the first question, here's the question. For example, passages in the New Testament about women being quiet in the church, not having authority over men, etc. The first question is, is it a moral question? Can you relate that question to the Ten Commandments? I don't know about you, but I can't. I I don't find that related to a moral issue. So that's my first clue that it needs some further study to sort it out, because it is not a moral issue. Secondly, is it normative in all the Bible or only in isolated passages? Now, I presume that the asker of this question had a couple of passages in mind. 1 Timothy 2, 9-15, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And he gives some reasons for that, and and that's in the context of his letter to Timothy, probably to Ephesus. And the other passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 33 to 35, and and that passage says that uh, I do not allow a woman to speak, in the church, but she is to remain silent and ask her husband the questions when she gets at, when she gets home. Now, how many verses of scripture does it take to compile a solid doctrine? It only takes one if it is unmistakably and unquestionably clear and without contest in any other part of the Bible. So the 
the first thing that we have to ask is when we come to these two passages, and it's the only two in all of Scripture that speaks this way, if we come to these two passages, are they unmistakably clear? And if you consider the Corinthian passage, for example, how many churches in the United States meeting this morning would be in violation of that passage? I would say all of them, or pretty close to all of them. Because I know of no church or assembly that never allows a woman to open her mouth. I don't know of any church that does that. And so automatically, whether we acknowledge it or not, there's already a cultural influence being introduced. Because in virtually every situation, in some way or another, women are permitted to speak. Curiously enough, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul even acknowledges this when he says, if a woman prays or prophesies, she needs to have her head covered. Now, that's a whole different topic. We could talk about dress and hair and head coverings uh, till the cows come home. But if you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is saying, when a woman preaches or when she prays in the assembly, she ought to have her head covered. Well, what does that mean with relationship to 14? How does that fit together? Would you say that this is an absolutely clear and unmistakable passage? I would say it raises some questions. It raises some questions in my mind. And I wasn't there So I don't know exactly what Paul was getting at, but I do know that women prophesied or preached and prayed in the assembly. And there was uh, an indication given for the appropriate way to do that. So is it normative in all the Bible or only in isolated passages? And my answer to that question would be, These are isolated passages, and they are not absolutely unmistakably clear. They require further study. And so, the third question that I have to ask is, is this true to God's character throughout the Bible? And as I study that, my answer is no. It's not true to God's character because if you look at the history of Scripture, Miriam was a prophetess. Now, what is a prophet? What is a prophetess? A prophet is someone who proclaims the Word of God. Only 10% of biblical prophecy is futuristic. Most prophecy is contemporaneous. In other words, God has a message to Israel for today. So it's the same as I do when I preach the scriptures to this congregation. It is a word from God for you today. 
and I want you to go out of here and practice it on Monday. I'd like you to go out of here and practice it Sunday afternoon. It's a proclamation of the Word of God. So, if Miriam was a prophetess, what did she do? She preached. She proclaimed the Word of God. If you go to the book of Judges, Deborah was not only a prophetess, but she was a judge and a leader. She was, the judges came in sequence. If you think of them as our presidents, Deborah was a president. She was a leader in Israel and a preacher. And so she had that role and that function. God appointed her for that purpose. He gifted her, he equipped her with gifts of leadership and prophecy, and appointed her with that in mind. So, in the New Testament, well, uh, there's another one in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 2.22. Don't get too excited about the context, it's not very good. I'm quoting the verse because of what it demonstrates. Um... The verse had to do with the priest's sons having immoral relationships with the women who were serving at the door to the temple. Well, you got to kind of X through that to get to the point. There were women who had service right at the door of the temple. They were involved in the liturgy of the nation of Israel, assuming they were probably of the tribe of Levi. They were Levites who were serving in the temple. And even though that whole period was very sad and ungodly and immoral, it doesn't change the fact that that function existed and that women held that function. So when you come to the New Testament... Um, One of the passages that I find interesting, Jesus demonstrated a lot of countercultural things. But you recall when he went to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he was sitting in the living room uh, teaching and explaining things. And where was Mary? She was sitting at his feet with all the guys. Okay? And Martha is slaving away in the kitchen. And finally, Martha's had enough. And she comes out and she says, Master, what's the deal? Mary's sitting here just drinking it all in at your feet. And I'm in there slaving away in the kitchen. And uh, tell her to get up and come help me. And Jesus says, Martha, I will not do that. Because she has chosen the better part. She has made a better choice. We can wait to eat. But what I'm saying is of such value that I will not take it away from Mary. That was very countercultural in that period of time. And Jesus was saying, Martha... You need to forget the kitchen and come sit here too. That, that's in essence what he was saying. He was not 
condemning Mary for her participation. In Luke 8, 1 to 3, we have the account of women who served along with the 12 disciples. They, uh, they're named in Scripture, and uh, many of them uh, had uh, a certain amount of independent wealth, apparently, and they were able to contribute to the necessities of the needs of the ministry that Jesus had. And in Acts, uh, or in John twenty seventeen, who is the first evangelist? that proclaims the resurrection of Jesus. It's Mary. Go tell my disciples that I ascend to your Father and to my Father, and I will come and see them. She was the very first evangelist. I I want you to pick out of this how Jesus particularly singled out women to elevate them to a position that they did not otherwise enjoy in the culture. That he was lifting them above the common understanding for a reason. In the upper room, it specifically mentions that the women were there with the men in the prayer meeting. And when it comes time to choose a replacement for Judas, they were all together. I presume the women voted. There's nothing that says, you know, it says they were there together and the women. And then it does not say, and they voted on Matthias, but not the women. It it just puts them all together and says they were participating in prayer in this upper room. From Joel, Peter quotes that in the last days, the Spirit of God will be poured out on men and women to prophesy or to preach. So, if the Spirit of God gives a woman a gift of preaching, does it make sense that he would not give her an opportunity to preach? We've been a little bit schizophrenic in the Christian Missionary Alliance. I'm departing from the text here for a second, but our missionaries all over the world, men and women, and, and, and often women by themselves, have preached the Word of God, evangelized, proclaimed the Word of God. I remember years ago meeting Hallie Spriggins, who was a professor of theology at one of our uh, seminaries in Africa, and I always found it ironic that um, we would not ordain her as a pastor or a preacher. But when the local churches in the villages identified a man that they wanted to be trained as their pastor, they sent him to seminary and how he taught him. So she was teaching the future generation of pastors. And you just look at that and say, what's wrong with this picture? You know, something is askew here that we're not recognizing her true giftedness as we should. So the Spirit is poured out on men and women in prophecy. I want you to go home and read these verses, but if I take time to read them all this morning, we're not going to get done. In Acts 16, verse 13, in chapter 17, um, 
women are recognized and Paul is teaching them in a ladies' Bible study. That was culturally a no-no. But Paul is there teaching in a, in a women's Bible study. That's where Lydia and so forth uh, was. In 1 Timothy 5, 1-2, Paul says to Timothy, Treat the older women like your mother, and treat the younger women as your sister. Now, how do you treat your mom? Assuming she's a godly lady, how do you treat your mom? Don't you have respect for her? Don't you listen to her? Don't you uh, appreciate her wisdom? How do you treat your sister? (laughs) Yeah, I kind of figured that. (laughs) But do you think of your sister, your sibling, as if you're a guy, or your brother, if you're a gal, do you think of them as any other than an equal? Aren't they an equal? They're an absolute equal. And so you have to treat them as equal, is what Paul was saying to Timothy. In Acts 18, we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla. In the first verse, we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla. And after that, it's always referred to as Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's name comes first. That's very atypical, unless she was the one who was outstanding. And apparently, she was the one that had this gift of teaching, and she was recognized as being first in this couple order. So she was the one who gave that example as a leader and a teacher. And in Romans 16, 7, and this is a very peculiar passage, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, who are outstanding among the apostles. Now, what's interesting about that is, the Greek proper noun is feminine singular. It's a feminine noun. Most English Bibles translate it as a masculine noun, Junius. Because our translators could not imagine that a woman would be an apostle. But in fact, Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, feminine who is outstanding among the apostles. Junia was a woman, not a man. She was a woman who stood out among the apostles. And if you take that word apostle and you move it into today, we have the equivalent of missionaries and church planters. And... Today, the role is filled as missionaries and church planters who go and proclaim the message and bring together a church and get it established and lay the foundation. That's the ministry of apostles in the New Testament. 
In the Christian or Missionary Alliance, in a Canadian document that I think perhaps we're moving toward in the United States, they say this as a, a position paper on the role of, of men and women in ministry. Women are created equal. They're gifted and empowered to lead. They're called to biblical leadership, and they're commissioned to participate in a global mandate. And then it says, where are my glasses? Do a little of print. And then it says, the Bible portrays women employing spiritual gifts in a variety of leadership roles, including judge, apostle, prophet, teacher, preacher, evangelist, deacon, house church leader. These examples of female ministry leadership and authority model valid and necessary roles for women within the church today and guide churches to provide opportunities for ministry on the basis of spiritual giftedness and godly character. In other words, the Bible recognizes women as equal in ministry and in gifting. Why would the Holy Spirit give a gift without giving any opportunity to express it? He doesn't do that. If He gives a gift, He gives a calling and a ministry for expression. Um, Carrie, I'm going to take couple more minutes okay um good thank you hermeneutics in order to understand i think some of where uh, we have gotten off base i want to go back to progressive revelation and i want to go back to genesis the garden of eden and Ephesians. If you analyze those two passages, so I'm talking about Ephesians 5 where Paul talks about marriage. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, the scripture says, and so he created them so he got so God created man, male and female, he created them, and he said to them, Subdue the world, have dominion over it, rule over the earth. I made this for you. Together you are to exercise leadership in the world. And He placed them side by side. When we come to the fall where Eve ate the fruit and gave it to Adam and God shows up in the garden, what does sin do? It corrupts. It distorts. It destroys. Um, it, it creates a, a confusion, and the blame game starts. What happened? Adam, where are you? Did you eat the fruit? 
the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and yes, I ate it. But it's her fault, and really it's your fault because you made her. And then he turns to Eve and he says, Eve, did you eat the fruit? Well, the serpent that you made beguiled me and I got confused and I ate it. It's really your fault, God. That whole blame game started. And God says this, and it's very interesting if you study. One time I spent weeks digging into the Hebrew of this passage. And if you study the Hebrew of the passage, you remember what God says? He says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on the ground the rest of your life. And then he says to Eve, I will multiply your, your pain in childbirth. Nevertheless, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. If you dig deeply into that and translate it properly, here's what it ought to to read. Eve, because of sin you're going to want to control your husband. And Adam, because of sin, you're going to want to dominate your wife. The two of you who were equal, who walked side by side, hand in hand, enjoying the beauty and the glory of creation, now there's strife in your relationship. Adam, you're always going to secretly think it's her fault. And you're going to blame her. And you're going to want to lord it over her. And Eve, you're going to feel insecure and insignificant in this relationship. And you're going to want to control him so that you can protect yourself. And how many marriages do you know? that reflect those attitudes. The, the, the unity, the togetherness, the equality has been disrupted, and instead, this domination and controlling has introduced it <clears throat> into the relationship. Fast forward through human history. What has been the story? Women have been dominated. In every culture, women have been dominated by men. If you jump to Ephesians in the marriage relationship, and and just focus on that for a moment, Paul, in the context of being spirit-filled, brings this message. Wives, respect your husband. Husbands, love your wife the way Christ loves the church. A spirit-filled marriage begins to balance back out the relationship so that trust prevails, integrity is built into the covenant 
And the wife, instead of trying to control her husband, respects her husband. And the husband, instead of trying to be the domineering ruler of the household, becomes the lover who gives everything for her sake, which is the way Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. This is progressive revelation. This is a writing of a wrong that goes back to the garden. But if we go beyond that and talk about the role in the church, friends, we treat one another, or we ought to, as equals. We are equals together in the body of Christ. Women are not supposed to be submissive to me. They're supposed to be submissive to Jesus. But we're to have a brother-sister relationship, a parent-son relationship an equal relationship and opportunity for women to exercise their gifts ought to be given in the church. You know, and I, I know that some of you are hesitant to to step out in leadership because you're confused over the subject and you don't want to disobey God. I, I hope this morning I can free you that I can liberate you and, and say, if God has given you gifts, we want to celebrate them. And quite honestly, besides our missionaries, I, I look forward to the day when God points out a woman that he is equipped to preach. She, it's fine. I'm not pointing to you because you're a woman. Just, just want you to know that. But fine, let's hear what God has given you to say. Let's recognize the equality that we share in Jesus Christ. Leave the ambiguity out of the picture and attempt to right the wrong that is prevalent in our culture because we need to exalt and honor the Lord Jesus Christ in everything and treat one another with great respect. Carrie, you have any parting words? Yeah, I mean, the only thing, I don't know if I, I'm not going to add anything, but obviously the, the question is how do we approach interpreting passages in the Bible and their cultural context? We gave some, some observation things, understand that we're coming with presuppositions to the text. By the way, and this is more of a confession because I think the, the spirit, I am a master at using the Bible to hurt other people. I don't know if you know if you know what I'm talking about. And I do that, my, my sinful nature does that under the guise of spiritual maturity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, by the way, that same tendency actually is used internally in my life to destroy myself, either through my sin nature or through demonic entities taking scripture passages to suppress the glory and the beauty of the image of God 
and the life of God and the vitality and fruitfulness of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we do that sometimes within the church. And when we do that, we are, um, we are not handling the word of God accurately. And um, this is where it says, be careful not all of you should choose to be teachers because some will be held, teachers will be held apparently before Christ to a higher standard. Thus we want to be approved workmen who are not ashamed of, the word, of how we handle the word of God. Be careful of that. Use the principles. And I know I was telling Paul yesterday, we're a biblically literate church, which I love that part about us, and we're wanting to grow as a community and to, and to dig deeper into it. And, uh, and so I believe a lot of these principles are active and engaged within our community. And believe it or not, there, are, there might be some differing views, even in this particular topic, so we need to approach it with unity and discuss it and labor together to um, ferret out the truth of God. The last thing I told Paul, the, the scripture verse that just came to me over and over and over again as we were discussing this over the last couple of days, it's actually in the, in the book of John um, where he actually says that if anyone's will is to do God's will, if your heart's desire is to do the will of God, the Lord will know, he or she will know whether the teaching is from God on or whether we are speaking on our own authority. And so when we commune together in community, this is the reason why he created the church too, we submit, therefore, one to another. And my teachings have error in them from time to time. I'm not, I'm not infallible. And so thus I need you even as you need me. Does that, does that make sense about what I'm saying? And be careful that we don't take stuff out of context and abuse one another with it. Because when we do that, we are actually trying to cut down a tree sometimes. Some trees need to be cut down and thrown to the fire. Those are moral trees. But at other times, we're using um, passages that we can use to cut down and try and prevent the fruitfulness of God in one another's lives. When we do that, we're sinning. We're sinning, and we need to be careful. Listen for the heart of God, for him to lead us into his truth. Challenge one another. Use the principles that we talked about about how to observe the text and talk and pray through it. We cannot, we, we are on Jacob's ladder. We are not perfect. We are heading towards the Lord. One day we will be there. We need one another. And by the way, that means every generation, even those that are here that are younger, you're going to wrestle with the same things that we're talking about right now. And culture is going to try and speak largely into it. And sometimes it's appropriate to be culturally relevant without actually allowing the true truths of the scripture to be compromised, right? 